welcome to the Spindrift Podcast, where we tell different stories from the world of cycling. From pro athletes to community advocates and everyday adventurers to industry insiders, Spindrift is all about different perspectives, underrepresented voices, tales that need to be told and experiences worth sharing. This episode, I'm joined by Lee Craigie, author, adventurer and athlete, to talk about her new book, Different Ways to Win. It's an autobiographical look at her adventures and experiences. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a little comment or review, or perhaps even sharing us with someone you know that would like this episode. Joining me on the Spindrift podcast for this episode is Lee Craigie, um, a woman of many talents. Lee, we've we've kind of listed a few, just a few of the things um, that you you could call yourself if you wanted to identify in that way. So we've got athlete, adventurer, author, ambassador, counting off all the A's there. You know, how would you describe yourself, or do you prefer just to see how things evolve? Mm, what what an interesting exercise that would be to then just go through the whole of the alphabet and find something that describes me from all of those different letters. That actually is a really nice summary, all those different things. But I suppose first first and foremost, I was a, a youth worker, um, an outdoor enthusiast that wanted to encourage other people to, to experience the outdoors. Um, and then that from there, everything else sort of sprung forth. My racing career and the organisations I've set up, they're all kind of around this idea that we could all benefit from a little bit more connection to the places that we came from. And I, I love that kind of circularity. And that's one of the things that sort of comes up again and again in, in, in your book, which we're going to be focusing our conversation on today, which is Other Ways to Win, A Competitive Cyclist's Reflections on Success by Vertebra Publishing, uh, which is, as of this conversation, about to drop. And having read nearly all of it, I've nearly finished it. Definitely, you have to read it. It's 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 fascinating and really quite moving. It's interesting as well, though, because I think you know if people are expecting that kind of title, maybe from and someone who's like an adventure cyclist, maybe what they're expecting is a you know a step by step guide on like how to fuel your adventure or train for like these mega experiences and like oh. succeed every time and that's not what your book is about <laughs> no that's it's quite far from that isn't it <laughs> yes. yeah it's 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 definitely not a definitive guide on how to go faster on your bike and yet there are elements of that but i think it might be a bit of a curveball to suggest that reading this book will make you go faster on a bike it might or it might not but it's definitely not the point of it um, I would say. How how did the book come about? Where where did where did the idea for it come from, and 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 how did it sort of evolve into what it is now? So I was approached by Vertebrae Publishing, whose strapline is inspiring adventure, and they were keen to get uh, another voice out there into the creative literary world that um, wasn't the traditional sort of heroic male voice, perhaps, and didn't necessarily mm-hmm. have these um, step-by-step guides on how to do a thing. And I was I was all for that. But then when they mentioned the idea of a memoir or a autobiography, I balked. I was really, I was really panicked by, by that idea. I didn't like the idea at all about writing a chronology of my life. But then I went away and thought about it and I read a few other memoirs of people and I thought there are other ways to do this. I've got a collection of stories that I've already almost written. I could 
just pull all of those together and find a common thread that weaves through them and tell the story of what's meant something in my life to date in in terms of these like standalone stories. So that's what I've tried to do. And it is roughly chronological because there's lessons from all different parts of, of my life that have meant something really huge to me. But yeah, it's not a traditional, and then I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. I hope. I hope. <laughs> it's, it's not. It, it, it's fascinating. But I guess before we get into sort of the subject matter and, and, and like your story as a cyclist and an adventurer and as a youth worker and a mountaineer and all the things that you've done, because you have written beautifully before, like you're not, this is not your first book. What it was about writing an autobiography that you struggled with, if you don't mind me asking, like what was the hesitancy there? Yeah, I suppose it's that kind of... Um... The possibility to lean towards narcissism. You know, this is all this is all about me. This is my story. And now you will sit yeah. and you will read my story. And that, I suppose, when you're talking about an autobiography, you're talking about writing the story of your life. It comes with an assumption that people are interested. <laughs> people are going to want to read about your life. You know, my life has interest and meaning for me and for the people that love me. Yeah. But... It's not necessarily going to be interesting and meaningful for, for other people. That's up to them to decide. So it's mm. a huge ask It's a, for, for someone to sit down and, and read my stories. I'm incredibly grateful to anybody that gives me the time to, to read my stories. And I just hope that they resonate with them, with, with the reader, and bring out something personal to them and that reader. It's like looking at a piece of art, I hope. My words are now on the page. They've left me. They're out there. They're now the conduit between what I have to say and what other people have to feel. And hopefully, you know, some people might read these stories and think something completely different to what I intended when I wrote them. And that's brilliant. When you put anything out there, as you said, like you put it out with your own intent intention and you know what you think it means but people are individuals they own have they have their own experiences and they connect with stories in different ways and different parts of different stories will will maybe spark something in someone else have you had that experience with any of the other things that you've put out and and what does that feel like from a from an author or an adventurer's perspective because you know you've put out adventures in lots of different formats as well which we'll talk about it's so exciting when someone comes back to me with feedback from something that they've seen now, like some sort of film that we've been involved in making or something that one of us has written or something that someone said, like quite often I'll have given a talk like 10 years ago and someone will come up to me and they'll they'll relay this part of my talk. I don't remember saying that and it probably wasn't even my intention. It was, it was, it was almost like off the cuff and they'll have taken something from that and it's taken them in that direction and that is the coolest thing. It just, just completely reinforces this idea that we're all just buzzing around each other looking for we all come with our own backgrounds and narratives and prejudices and ideas and hopes and dreams and fantasies and all we're doing is buzzing around each other looking for bits of inspiration that means something to us and then we take that and we make it ours and that's the beauty I think of writing and music and art and Less, less. I think visuals, less TV. I think that feeds you too much. But even a podcast, mm-hmm. even this, it's very intimate. Mm-hmm. People are listening; it's coming straight into your ears, and you're left with your own emotions. And and I think there's something about an art, art, all those art forms that I've just talked about that carve out space for people to consider what that means to them, what that touches in them, or what that sparks in them. Or maybe it doesn't at all, and they have to just put it down and move on to something else. But when it does do that, like I'm sure you've had that experience as well, when you've heard a piece of music or you've read something that really resonates, 
then it can be totally shape-shifting and take you off in a completely different course. Um, it's exciting. It's so exciting that we have that. We have the potential for that effect on each other. It is, isn't it? And it's there's something magical about about having that that possibility of, of of connecting with people in that way and then sparking something for them that might take them on a new trajectory or allows them to discover something new about themselves that they didn't know i mean that's one of the things that i love about growing older is that i'm learning more about myself all the time and you peel back another layer of yourself and it's often through those connections and conversations and pieces of music or something that you read or listen to and you learn something else about yourself through that it's just it's an amazing way of connecting with people and i think one of the things that i love about cycling is the stories in and around cycling of the people and their experiences and their connections i think probably connects more with me individually and i think that's one of the reasons that I, I love this book because yes you talk about racing yes you talk about big adventures and the challenges that you face within it but ultimately it's about your experiences and the people that you've met and what that's felt like and it's the variety in your book is fascinating you know i, I sort of was aware of you through the adventure syndicates um and it's really fascinating to learn more about your youth getting into riding and then the racing I knew you'd done that but sort of how that came about but then how it's evolved as well in such diverse ways <laughs> like everything from like incredible endurance races to experiences on cargo bikes tag teaming across Europe they're so broad and so different but there is that thread as you said that sort of takes you through through them all would you mind if we kind of went back then to the beginning I guess of your story and, and how you got into bikes and, and do you remember when you first felt that spark of there's something about riding a bike and what that gave you and what that meant to you? And, and has that changed over time? Mm, yeah, I remember it so clearly. I was a little bit obsessed with the first bike I ever had that didn't have stabilisers on it. It was a little red BMX and I was just... I felt like I was missing a limb if I wasn't on it. Like I got to a stage, I must have been seven, eight. That was about the time that it fitted me. I, ju I just remember just always wanting to be on it. It was just, it was my best friend and mobility aid. It was my emancipation. It was my way of learning about my body and my neighbourhood. And and it was my first sort of real idea that I could self-propel, you know, that I, I could do this myself. It was really, really cool. But there was, I think the thing that hooked me was how I felt when I was in control, when I had mastery of this machine. So I think that was probably my first experience mm -hmm. of the state that we all or many of us strive for, the state of flow, where you're not thinking yeah. anymore about emotion. It just becomes second nature. So it's not like your brain is telling your hands or your feet to do something. It's as though it's a full body immersion experience and your body just knows what to do and it's effortless. And I just, I just love that feeling. And I, and I could be out from dawn till dusk because I was enjoying that, that feeling. Um, and it never felt like training. It never felt like hard work. It was just like, if I was sitting still inside, I was like, something's wrong. What is it? Oh yeah, I've got to be outside. I've got to be on, on that bike. So that, yeah. that was where it started from. And I still hanker after that feeling. That, that I got as, as a little kid at that age and makes me long for that experience for all kids really. Yeah it, it is something magical like I very clearly remember the first time I managed to ride the bike without stabilizers on. It's such a powerful experience um, and then later on for me it, it sort of 
it was because I got into, I guess, mountain biking and cycling much later on in life uh, compared to a lot of people anyway, particularly in the bike world. And it sort of that, that's for me when it started to connecting up with my love of being outdoors. That's another thing that sort of runs very strongly through your book is that kind of intense connection with being outdoors um, the physicality of it and and that connection with the outdoors was that connection between all of that and cycling from an early age or did that come later for you so it did it started to come with that little red bmx it meant that i could access a piece of yeah. and reserve really close to to my house and those two things were were co-joined and then later i realized i could access much much wilder space at, at sort of 14 or, or 15 again that was that was by bike and then once I realised I could do that by bike, I parked it actually. I parked the bike for quite a long time. And that was when I realised that I could, you know, moving more slowly and in wild places and challenging myself in climbing terms, um, mountaineering, te- technical mountaineering and, and rock climbing and uh, just moving through the mountains on foot actually gave me that same feeling of, of joy, especially if, if it was self-supported in the mountains on, on foot. And, and it was at a slower pace and it was just, it was as exciting. And so I, I didn't actually go back to the bike until really I was in my early 20s, sort of 24, 25. And I didn't race until I was 26. Yeah. So I also got into it seriously much later. Um, I always ridden a bike, uh, but it, it wasn't my yeah. life. Until I was much older, but it has always been a tool to access the mountain. So what prompted that return then to, to picking up the bike for... I guess adventure adventure purposes or race purposes like wh- why did you go back to the bike so I moved back north to the highlands so I lived in the highlands when I worked for Outward Bound first when I first left university and then I was traveling and down in the central belt and then when my partner and I moved to Inverness uh, like 16 17 years ago we suddenly the proximity to the hills was, was right there but a bike was the obvious way to get into them and so I didn't really realize it but just by using my bike to get into the hills and actually doing some quite full-on stuff when I was in the hills, quite often carrying the bike, made me really strong. Uh, I felt really competent and able and it was a it was a really lovely feeling. But it was totally by mistake that I started racing. It was just a local race that I was encouraged to enter. I didn't have any expectations for myself at all, just entered it and I won it. And then I thought, oh, right, wow, okay, well, Let's see what happens next. And then it honestly was just that. It wasn't planned. It wasn't thought through. It was just, I just got caught in a conveyor where I was just getting better. While I was getting better, it was very difficult to get off that conveyor. (laughs) So again, the bike had to be parked. I was using it all the time, but suddenly I was using it to, to train and race. I wasn't using it to get into the mountains anymore. And that was a sacrifice. And I think in the book, it does come back full circle where, where the bike yeah. becomes my tool for joy again. I love that, like bike is a tool for joy and that, that comes through so, so much. And I think that's definitely going to hopefully connect with a lot of people. So talking about the racing, um, and that was that was quite an interesting period of time. I think there's also something, and maybe it was to do with like when I first got into mountain biking, um, and it felt like there was at least maybe just in my experience of like what I was seeing or hearing or where I was geographically, that the thing to do when you got into mountain biking was to try racing. And um, I am terrible at racing. It's just not, you know, I, I love watching and following racing, really enjoy that. 
mentally it's just not my thing as I've talked about many times before but it sort of felt like that was a thing that you did and for you you were obviously naturally gifted in that super fit like you have the skills the stamina the fitness you talk about that you sort of kind of got on this conveyor belt because you were good at it and then it was hard to get off could you talk a little bit more about that was it was it because you felt like you had an opportunity so you should use that opportunity or was you know what, what was going on with that yeah I, I, I still think about this quite a lot actually what was the moment yeah. when I thought right this is what I want to do as a career there wasn't that moment there wasn't that defining mm-hmm. moment it just all they all kind of merged yeah. into each other before I realised actually my whole life is now revolving around this. I'm being paid to do this. I've got sponsorship. I'm racing every weekend. Everything is about yeah. going faster on a bike. It did happen incrementally. And I think the reason that I stayed on the conveyor was because I was curious. So there was a couple of things. I love the feeling of having raced. I love the feeling of having gone really hard and like my body had been pushed to its edges you know, there was a neurological um, rebalancing. There was a definite chemical addiction to that feeling. There was a social yeah. addiction. You know, suddenly I was part of this thing that was happening. I got scooped up and I was given training plans, which helped structure my life, which was also quite appealing. And little by little, it just all kind of felt like, well, this is sort of just the direction that I'm going in. And I remained curious because I always felt like I could go faster and it wasn't like I want I wanted to be a world champion and needed to be the best. It was just I was just always curious about okay, well I I feel like I've I improved a lot last year. I wonder what I can do this year. And I wonder what would happen if I did this differently or if I thought about this. It was just one big experiment. And it was so addictive, it was so interesting, you know, psychologically interesting. I was learning so much about yeah. myself. And I and physically. I just really liked it physically. I, I really enjoyed an excuse to ride my bike every day instead of going to an office. I mean, when you put it like that, that does sound pretty good. Well, yeah. I mean, you're not gonna, you're not, you're not gonna complain, are you? And what was it like being on those programs? Because people talk about retrospectively, and I don't know if this is what it was like then. There was, a, you know, a lot of pressure on on athletes, particularly with regards to things like body weight and physique, and sort of targets and things like that did you did you feel that kind of pressure and how did you manage that if you did so in cross-country mountain bike racing there is a real performance gain to be had for being light and strong so your body weight your percentage fat did matter but I don't think it mattered quite as much as we were told that it mattered I think there was a lot of fear and pressure and anxiety that our coaches were feeling and they didn't fully understand I think it's fair to say that they didn't fully understand the female physiology at the time. This was a few years ago. I'm sure things have changed quite a lot since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I felt like when I was at my peak of racing, what I was being asked to do was balance on a knife edge between being very thin and fast, but also being unhealthy. So, it, and it didn't work. Like 30% of the time, I would get to a start line and I would be on form and I would have a good strength to weight ratio and I would do well but most of the time I was just a bit miserable and I would get sick because my natural body weight was heavier than they were asking and if I was happier and I was healthy then overall my performance was better and and I really feel quite strongly that I was being forced into behaving in a certain way that caused more performance reducing stress than was necessary but 
I, I mean, I don't know. We put elite sports people on a pedestal, don't we? And we think they're incredible. They're brave and strong and mm. um, determined and, and all these amazing things that our children should be. But when you break it down, it's really not very healthy what we do in order to be as good as that. Um, not just physiologically, but emotionally. Like We're putting ourselves in start lines to beat other people. What does that say to our children? One person wins and everybody else loses. You know, it, it, it's a, when you break it down, it's sort of a funny messaging to be aspiring to. And when that messaging from the race field starts to spill out into our everyday life, it stands in really sharp contrast, doesn't it? It's just like, no, of course you don't want your children to behave like this in everyday life. So then why are we asking them to behave like that on a race course? It's just, it's just interesting to me because I'm not anti-racing. It taught me so much and helped me compartmentalise all sorts of complicated animal feelings of wanting to go fast, wanting to do well, wanting to beat other people, wanting to be the best. This is real stuff. But it's just really important, I think, that we keep it in check and that we have balance, that we don't balance our entire self-worth on it, that if we have a bad race, we can laugh. Or if, or if someone else does, it's not a judgment on their character. It's just... Yeah. Well, that's, that's a shame, isn't it? Let's keep it in context. Nobody died. <laughs> but that's hard when it's your whole life. It is interesting that we that competition seems to be the way you judge things rather than... And, and maybe it's to do with, like, coverage as well, like how we talk about sports as well. Like, maybe this, you know, comes back to your comment about being a different voice and telling a slightly different story and perspective on sport, inverted commas, and adventure that isn't necessarily about this one person against everything conquering a thing and is maybe more about participation, experience, connection, emotion, feeling. And, you know, I guess maybe as well, some of the things we don't maybe like to talk about, but maybe should also value, acknowledging things like um, ambition or loneliness or grief or, you know, responsibility as well. Um, and those being valuable things that you can get from doing something that you enjoy outdoors that, that doesn't necessarily have to be winning good, losing bad, and that's it. There are so many different ways we can kind of experience things. And I think it's it's interesting that we don't seem to talk, well, we didn't used to talk about those stories more. I'm hoping that these are the kind of stories that you have more opportunities to hear about and, and people have more opportunities to tell these days. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I do feel a shift and I don't think just in, in a sporting context. I think in my book and in my life, I use sport as a metaphor for this this change or this this shift away from this yeah. conquering hero model to the, the connection and the collaboration and the care and the fairness. But I think what I also think is really important is that we don't, we don't other these two different ways of being like everything that you just said there can also be a performance enhancer. You know, if you're talking about going fast on a bike, let's stick to that as, a, as an example, then actually backing off a little bit, being patient, being kind to yourself, self-soothing, breathing, looking up, looking around you, those things will make you go faster. And we're so hell-bent on, on the opposite. You know, we're so hell-bent on, are you feeling bad thoughts? Are you struggling physically? Shut up, legs. Put it to one side. Keep going as hard as you can. And there are other ways to manage that discomfort in life. And I don't. And now I'm flit, flitting away from the racing idea. Maybe we need to be reframing what successful looks like and what it is that we're trying to to achieve in our 
politics, in our business, in our economy. I mean, for goodness sake, this stuff, it's not solely the domain of sport to be looking at looking at these old traditional models of, of winning and losing. There's lots of different things that we can learn in all walks of life from thinking about success and winning in a different way. Sport, like anything else, is a, it's a microcosm. It's, it's part of society. It's part of life. It's part of our world. And therefore is sort of subject to the same pros and cons and biases and obstacles and, and everything else as everything else is. So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting going back to the title of your book then, because if you talk about it as other ways to win, would you say that maybe that's kind of what you're conveying in this book is kind of other ways you've discovered to win or to succeed or how success has changed for you or the definition of success has changed for you over the course of your life? I really hope that that is what comes out of my writing, that I've been exploring what it is that we place value on, not just in sporting terms, but in the wider world and looking at ways that I can live a life that actually makes me happy and makes the people around me happy and contributes to a, a healthy community and a, and a sustainable environment. I do So I do some work with the Scottish government um, as the ambassador for active travel. Um, so here's, a, here's maybe a, a different example from a racing, a racing example. We've got a possibility to change how fair our societies are if we shine a spotlight on how unfair it is that some of us can afford to drive places um, and therefore clog up our, our streets with, with fuel emissions. And those very streets are the streets that people that can't afford cars are breathing in all of this air pollution. So we've got an opportunity to shift away from this idea of cars dominating, money, the economy driving, and moving towards a well-being economy, moving towards putting the health and the happiness of our communities, our population, and the sustainability of environment first. And then from that, economy won't suffer. So this is the same this is the same idea. Your performance might not suffer if you are patient and kind and you think in social justice terms. It's not a soft skill versus hard skill. It's not a people with money versus people without money. It's not people with sporting aspiration, people without. This is about just generally deciding how it is that you want to be in the world and then seeing that good things will come from that. We don't need to be so goal-focused. We can focus on the process and in focusing on the process, we can be happy while we're achieving a goal. So I guess that is sort of what I'm trying to get at in, in this book. It took me a long time to figure out that I can enjoy the process of becoming faster on a bike. And then actually, the goal doesn't matter that much if you enjoy the process. So I suppose it relates to, like you, you specifically mentioned, I think at one point in the book, that you'd done really well. You'd, I think you'd got the British National Champs and then you were... Um, racing uh world cups and then you had a performance that you weren't happy with you just didn't feel comfortable like maybe like you'd lost the love a little bit um in where you were and then you have this this bike packing trip i think if i've gleaned this correctly it was your first self-supported bike packing trip and it even that evolved as you went on it like you started off like we're going to go from a to b and then you're like oh this is a really nice village let's just like detour around all these beautiful places and have these experiences and then you come back and because you feel happy you know maybe it's you know more complicated than that but did that play a part in then winning and then you know that the sort of the importance of of like 
happiness and, and that being intrinsically valuable in, in and of itself. Like money in itself doesn't make me happy. It's what money could do or could mean for me. And ultimately, happiness is really kind of what I would like to be measuring that against. So that sounds like the ultimate goal. You just described the wellbeing economy beautifully there. And that is exactly what it was. You hit the nail on the head. Yes, I raced better because I was happier. <laughs> it was as simple as that. The pressure was off. I felt happy. I just I felt like I'd come back into my body a bit and I was doing what I wanted to do because I loved it. And I was just reminded of the reason that I ride a bike. And it was as simple as that. And I think we do quite often overthink things, overcomplicate things. And that also strips the happiness out of something, doesn't it? Just shaking it all down to one bike, two bags, a mate if you've got one who's willing to come with you and just going out and just being open to experiences, just not being too focused, just just following your nose a little bit, exploring, having time to talk to people and grow and learn and adapt and practice flexibility and all, all that good stuff. Those are all things that I definitely need to get better at. And I, I don't know as well if it's something to do with the fact that personally, before I got into the bike industry and knew about stuff, I'd just do things I didn't really think about, like, is this a long way or do I have the right kit? And then I think I kind of got a bit, almost like swallowed the Kool-Aid a little bit and was like, oh, I can't possibly go on this trip because I don't have exactly the right bag for it. And I feel like I'm weaning myself off that now because apart from anything else, Another reason I love this book is because there's something brilliant about hearing about someone who is clearly a very experienced person when it comes to sort of long events, huge rides and, and, and endurance events. Not always, please don't take this the wrong way, but not always getting it right, but then it's still okay. That then maybe leads you off in the direction of another adventure or experience that maybe is possibly even cooler than the one you had originally planned. Absolutely. And I, I am not at all offended by that. The times that it has gone wrong have been the most rewarding and rich times, without, without exception. And it's always been tricky just to get your head around initially and to let go of what you thought something was going to be. Or to let go of that feeling of having messed up or not done well enough or failed. Once all that's gone, brilliant. Yeah, just go go with the new plan. And without exception, when I've forgotten something or I've taken the wrong route or something's happened that's out of my control, that's when it's been at its most rich. You know, the list of, of things that you've done is pretty epic. So we've got like things like the Tour Divide, Silk Roads, um, the Highland Trail, in a wide variety of different places, meeting an incredible range of different people. Well, you talk a lot about like the physicality of it, as well as like what goes through your head, like the mental side of it, and the connections that you form. For you, what is it about, if it's possible to sum this up, because you've got a whole book worth of explaining this, what it is about doing a big trip or an adventure that that sort of speaks to you what what do you get from it and that makes you keep wanting to come back and do what for a lot of people sounds like a really challenging hard thing to do I think I mean f for for me too it is hard and challenging that's the reason that that I suppose I put myself into these um into these positions because it's so easy to live a life where you're not challenged and you 
you live within a comfort zone and within an echo chamber of people that think the same way as, as you do. But I just wonder, I wonder where the growth is, I suppose, when I'm not, when I'm not out there, slightly out of my comfort zone and grappling with what that means and, and what I, I learn about myself and about pl- the places that I'm moving through and about other people. That's when, that's when I learn the most. It, it is uncomfortable to begin with. But it doesn't end uncomfortably. So that, and that's what's so hard to get out the door and to do these things because you're leaving your house, you're leaving your comforts, you're leaving everything that you know. And no matter how well you prepare, you're going into the unknown. That's the definition of an adventure with an unknown outcome. Um, and we do that because because we're curious and we want we want a little bit of um, the unknown. We we need to we need to be slightly uncomfortable, slightly on our toes in order to engage all those bits of our brains and our bodies that are just going dormant because everything is so at, at the touch of a button. You can get anything you want at any time of the day and you can look up information online wherever you are and, and it's amazing. But it also dulls the senses and doing something like that brings me back into my body and keeps things simple and reminds me actually what it is that makes me a human being on the planet, surrounded by other human beings, with a wild and fascinating world that needs to be explored and looked after. So for all those reasons, I guess I keep putting myself out there. It definitely isn't the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Always. I mean, and I love that, that sort of curiosity being the driver. And I think one of the other things that you mentioned in your book is that, you know, when you're, and I'm totally probably paraphrasing this incorrectly, but when your little days feel really long and that it's because everything is new and you're discovering things all the time and there's lots of new experiences. And then maybe as we get older, we get into a groove and everything is you have to do the same things over and over again. So like, you know, what makes yesterday different to today, different to tomorrow but then when you start doing things and you get that curiosity, time seems to stretch out again. If you were going to give advice to someone who's like tempted to do something, but is maybe a little bit anxious about it, what would you say to them? I always struggle with the question if you were to give advice to someone, because, well, first of all, I would never give advice to someone unless they, or I try not to ever give advice to someone unless they specifically ask me for something. And then I would take into account their background, what they wanted to get out of that. And I'd have to do a lot of listening first, I think. But let's assume that they've read that piece of my book, which really, really meant a lot to me as well, Aoife. I'm glad that you, I'm glad you picked up on that bit. It's this idea that when we're kids, the days are so long, aren't they? Because everything is new. We're constantly being bombarded with new stuff. We're learning all the time. The space between, you know, I think there's George Eliot in the Mill and the Floss, a space from summer to summer seems measureless. That idea, I mean, we, we forget that, don't we, as we get older. It's just like the space from summer to summer, that was just like a minute ago. And what a shame, what a waste. My friend calls it the velvet rut. To be in the velvet rut is very comfortable in there, but <laughs> it is a rut. <laughs> and I think if somebody were to ask my advice, then let's assume that they feel stuck in a velvet rut and that they're not happy anymore being in that velvet rut and that they would like to do something different. But it's scary. It's really scary to step away from all the stuff that makes you comfortable. 
And so I would suggest that they don't go all in, like you don't need to go to Kyrgyzstan and ride the Silk Road to put yourself out of your comfort zone. You can take it much, much smaller steps than that. But know that you could do that stuff. Like nothing is impossible. Everything is possible. And it's just you need to decide what your first step is going to be. And don't look around and compare yourself to anybody else. You decide what your first step you're pushing out of your comfort zone is going to be and do that and see how it feels and if you like that feeling if it doesn't freak you out too much then take the next step and take the next step and take the next step because yeah there's there's we only get one life don't we be ever such a shame to not live it that's so true that's such a good way of putting it I like that it feels so achievable like your first step because every person's step will be different that will look different that will feel different it'll be a big step might be a little step might be just a toe outside of your front door but, you know, you're still taking that step and evaluating where you go from from next if you want to go further or maybe just like sticking your toe out the front door. That's totally fine as well. <laughs> Another thing that you that's that's always been like a feature, I think, of of the the adventures that you've been on, the Adventure Syndicate specifically as well, is is that sort of storytelling aspect of it. So sharing the adventure or sharing the story of the adventure or the people in the adventures and in quite a range of different ways is that something that did you set out to share those adventures is that part of the original adventure plan as it were or is that something that you know people expect if you've had an adventure you should share your adventure or something around that what a brilliant question That is such a good question because the Adventure Syndicate is first and foremost a storytelling platform where a bunch of people that happen to be women that do quite full on things by bike, sometimes not, sometimes little things, but it's the the telling of that story in an accessible way that encourages other people to want to do that stuff that is the point. But there is something so valuable about going out there and not telling that story, about leaving your phone behind and not thinking in terms of how this experience that I'm having will be seen through a a, a third party's eyes. There needs to be a balance in in there. And I sort of feel a little bit like sometimes we've built a rod for our own back because it's lovely when we put these stories out there and people come to us and say, oh, you know, you'll never guess as a result of reading that or seeing that we've done this. And that just makes my heart sing. But it does change the adventure for us if we're thinking in storytelling terms while we're doing the thing. So the balance for me now is to do the thing, to have the adventure in as protected a way as I can and it be authentic, it be my experience, my adventure. And then after that, think about how to put that out in, into the world. But that that part is consolidated in me. It's, it's already been my experience. It's, it's had meaning to me. I've not been distracted. My head's not been, oh, how will this look on Instagram? All of that's gone. Yeah, there's been some photos taken. There's even been some voice notes re- recorded, but it's not dominated. And then it's afterwards that you think about how to put that out into the world. And it's still a balance, like still just sort of trying to tussle with it. And then sometimes just never doing anything at all, just going out on your own, even not with another person, let alone with a camera and just and just being still and silent and figuring it out for yourself. I love stories. I love sharing stories. I love reading stories. The more different, the better. Like I love hearing other people's perspectives. There's definitely a lot of pressure now as well that an adventure is only worth having if you are going to share it. And then therefore something kind of conversely quite 
revolutionary about intentionally going out with no intention of sharing a story. It feels like maybe that's just me and because of my sort of the work that I've done in journalism. And I I love that idea and I can't lie. It makes me feel a bit anxious, but also quite excited, like to try and wean myself off trying to share everything. It's interesting that that's become such a big part of like we we need different stories, but does everything have to be a story? Isn't it interesting? Because the same things happen for me. I grew up, you know, I'm 44 and I grew up in a world where this just didn't exist. And the quality of my experience has changed. Like my brain has changed as a result of thinking through a storytelling and the fast storytelling. I'm talking about pictures on Instagram and film in particular. Those things, that they're fast ways to churn content out. But really forcing yourself to sit and think and sit with that discomfort of being alone, being there on your own with something and really observe the different quality in that experience to if you're thinking about relating it to some to somebody else. It's a completely different thing and so valuable. I think if you're then going to go on to tell an authentic story, you need that pause. Otherwise, the story's a bit boring. <laughs> it doesn't have any of you in it. It's just, it's just words and noise. But if you've had an experience first, then you've got more to say, I think. You know, if, you've, if, if it's felt meaningful to you, if you felt connected with that place and that time yourself, then, then it'll work as a story. And if you haven't felt that, I don't know. I, I don't get much out of reading posts like that or articles like that or watching films that are just all about the hype. I think it's got to have a little bit more to it than that. Yeah, got to have some heart in there. No, you're right. And I think it, maybe it's the difference between if you're always thinking through that lens, you are literally maybe one step removed from what's going on rather than, than actually the participant. You're almost like the observer to the adventure itself. In the early part of your book, you talk about working with young students and excluded pupils or pupils on, on students on referral. And that the connection that you are able to have with them and, and the um, the positive impact, the opportunity of, of doing something like going for a bike ride and, and maybe the experiences around that and what that can tell you about yourself or what you can learn as an individual about yourself and what you're capable of. And that sort of comes through full circle again then with some of the other things that you're now working with as an ambassador for active travel in Scotland, for example. So that sort of, I guess, social justice element, has that always been part of something that's motivated you within your career, your life and, and cycling? Yes. In cycling, no. <laughs> I think I, in, in racing, I lost sight of that for, for quite a long time. There were two worlds that existed side by side for a long time while I was still working with these boys that had been excluded from school and I was racing. But they were two very different parts of me that weren't really meeting in the middle. But everything else that I've done, working as a, an outdoor instructor, um, working as a school counsellor, and in this ambassador role um, and the adventure syndicate, it has been it has been driven by this hope that I can somehow do my little bit to reduce social inequality. Because I think that sort of sits at the heart of, of everything that's wrong, really. If if we can focus in on that as a lever, if if everything that we do, everything that we say, um, every decision that we make 
comes through that that prism of, of social justice, then we just make all the right decisions. We're just not we're not we're not horrible to each other. We don't we don't take more than we need. We don't need to earn the big bucks. We don't need to drive everywhere. We have time for people. We look them in the eye when we have a conversation. We value the important stuff, I think, if we look at the world through this lens. And everything else just then fall, falls into place. Our climate emergency would disappear if we had a focus on if all our decisions were around social justice. Our health inequalities would 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 disappear. Depression, anxiety that would that would evaporate, you know. And we can't do that. That's not what's going to happen overnight. But we can live our lives in a way that helps that along. So I guess that's why it motivates me. There is so much inequality out there, and there are things that could could be done if we made different decisions for different reasons with regards to then bikes and social equality how do you see those two connecting because one of the great things about cycling is there's it can be so many things to so many people it's like a form of transport it can be used as the trail therapy that's happening with developing mountain biking scotland to run their their pilot on that it's a sport if you want it's physical activity so i suppose if you look historically at how bikes have, have fitted into the picture they came about about as a as a levelling up tool, you know, suddenly they offered social mobility to a class of people that couldn't afford motor cars. And, and it meant that people, especially women, could move out of their very narrow confines of society and understand and grow and learn from, from different types of people. Um, and it meant access to green space was suddenly possible. It meant that the gene pool could, could widen. It meant that people could autonomise their own transport and for, for lots of different reasons, that, that's a great thing. And when we consider those are the roots of the bicycle to now when we do, are living in a world that is so car dominated, it's so just overrun with these polluting things that are taking away our capacity to think and feel and be free in green space and allow others that that same opportunity and it's you know really threatening our our biodiversity and, and climate emergency when we consider where we've come to and we see where a bicycle can slot into that to be part of the solution. The bicycle is not going to reverse climate change, but it can be a really powerful part of a solution. Um, if we look at cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen, where they've pedestrianised their town centres, not only are, have they reduced their, their carbon emissions, but they're just safe calm, pleasant places for people to breathe and be and in community. Those places have been built for people and for connection to nature and each other. And if we're not going to prioritise that and not see that the bike can enable those sorts of spaces in our built up uh, towns and centres, then we're really missing a trick. And I think we need to invest more in the bicycle, invest more in places that we can ride bikes safely, separately from, from traffic, and be bold. Like Those decision makers, they know the economic, the health and the environmental benefits that can come from this. Be bold and just do it, <laughs> because that is what, in countries all over the world that have already done it, no one's saying, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Everyone's saying, this is amazing. Thank goodness we did this. And, it do and, and I think it is really important to say that bikes are just a part of that solution. Walking, like just building places that people can walk, that's almost more important. Those tight, it's those short journeys that are killing us and the planet. We need to be thinking about them in a different way. Yeah, if it was safer and more convenient to get places. And if, 
a lot of infrastructure is already there. It's just kind of changing attitudes and changing maybe usage and construct new places to live so that you're not like stuck in a house away from anywhere that you need to get to, that you can walk to the shops to get your milk makes a huge difference and then you've also kind of you get i guess more community around that as well because people aren't just like in their house and then in their car and then inside something else people are hopefully outside and sort of mingling more and connecting with nature whatever form that takes whether it's just like trees in your local street through to to sort of you know local parklands or being able to get out into the forest if you if you're lucky enough to have that near you absolutely you've hit the nail on the head there And I think if I could do one thing, if I was given the power to do one thing, it would be to close off the kilometre around every school in the UK to cars so that everybody had to take that pause in the morning and in the evening to get to and from school or to get their kids to and from school. I think that would just transform the way we felt (laughs) and, you know, would give us so much more energy and focus for our day ahead. One of the nicest little videos I saw from Kendall, I think it was last year or the year before, was a local school that had set up a little bicycle train and like they, you know, had like loads of parents volunteering to like stop the cars and they had like a special switch so they could like make the traffic lights hold for them. And it was just so lovely. And I, yeah, I love that, especially kids on bikes. Going back to what we're talking about, the right at the start, it's that like when you have that experience on a bicycle and, you know, again, bikes aren't cheap and there's an inequality in in which kids get to have bikes to have that experience and whether they're in a safe environment where they can even ride them that's you know that there's an opportunity there to have such a big impact on on people's lives for the better um, improve their well-being improve all aspects of their well-being from like mental and physical health to opportunities it's yeah i mean surely surely it's a no-brainer lee what's next for you i mean you've got a lot happenings either in your role as ambassador or um in your passion as a cyclist what what's on the on the near horizon for you now well on the really immediate horizon is my term as ambassador for um, ambassador for active travel is come to an end so oh. that is actually really great <laughs> Uh huh. Okay. Why? It's I've done I've done everything that I can do in that space. I don't think that working at a strategic policy level is ever going to bring me joy. There's just too much process that gets in the way of progress, and it's it's just sacking the life out of me. (laughs) So while it's super important, I'm so glad that there's civil servants out there doing this job, and we've got good ministers, especially in the Scottish government, fighting this fight. I think I can do more by returning to the third sector and working again grassroots with people that are out there making that change. I I sort of feel like I've done my stint there. So I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to pause. The Adventure Syndicate continues and I will always ride bikes. But I don't know, I think I might need to do something that slows me down and brings me back into my body, as I talked about before. So growing vegetables, making baskets, going back to woodwork, joinery, something that's just like practical and tangible and means that my feet are on the ground and my hands are in the soil, please. (laughs) For a while, at least. (laughs) 
That sounds amazing. That sounds like a, a wonderful way to, to reconnect. And um, going back to the third sector, you take with you, of course, all that knowledge of how all of that stuff works and knowledge is power when it comes to making those kind of changes, knowing the right people to talk to, the processes to go through yeah. has, a, has a lot of benefits as well. Lee, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I could have asked you questions for days, but but we should leave some content for people to read in the book, I think is probably wise. So. <laughs> Um, the book is out and it's also on audible it's uh, I, I recorded it myself in, in audio form if you want to listen to it while you're on your bike that sounds like a wonderful idea and lee if people want to sort of keep up with what you're up to in terms of things like social media and websites what's the how can people keep track of what you're up to well i won't post it all <laughs> but <laughs> but there's some yeah we're pretty active um both my own Social media accounts, uh, Lee Craigie and the Adventure Syndicate are, are, we try to be as active as we can muster while also keeping the important stuff back for ourselves. <laughs> so you can follow us there and we, we are going to be running events and gatherings um, as usual in 2024 in, in the hope to actually make some real life connections and not just online ones. So hopefully we'll see some people there. Fantastically. Thank you very much. I will put the links to those in, in the show notes as well. Um, but for now, happy adventuring, happy cycling, happy gardening, happy woodworking. And uh, I look forward to, to catching up with you, hopefully in person in the future. Oh, that would be nice. Thanks, Eva. Lovely to see you. Thanks for listening to the Spindrift podcast. I've been Eva Glass, your host for this episode. If you'd like to keep in touch, Spindrift has a website, so go on that for the show notes where I'll be putting all the links uh, that Lee has mentioned, including a link for where you can find both the audiobook and the book itself. I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy. It's both inspirational and moving and made me laugh in places and raised a tear in others. Spindrift also on Instagram at spindrift underscore podcast. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you did like this episode and would like to give us a hand, then any ratings or comments or reviews that you can pop up will really help us reach a wider audience. And if you really enjoy the episode and you know someone that you think might like Spindrift, please do let them know about us. We would love to reach more people and share more stories. Thanks for listening. Trying to